Okay. Good evening, everyone. <clears throat> Good to have you all here this evening. We are going to be looking at the seventh chapter, at least the beginning of the seventh chapter of uh, the book of Revelation. First of all, can you all hear me okay? If I speak a little softer, can you still hear me? Yeah? No? It needs to go up a little bit? All right. Well, I can't do that from here, I guess. I have to... Yeah. All right, let's see. Oh, yeah, okay, there we go. All right. Testing, one, two. Can you all hear me now? All right, because I, I don't, you know, I don't want anybody to say, I couldn't hear what you said. Well, you should have told me right when I asked you. Now that I, now that I know you can hear me, I'm, I'm, I'm good. All right, I'm good with you. You're good with me, right? Amen? All right. <sighs> Revelation chapter 7. Before we, before we go on, I have to mention, we, it, it, is, it is good. The Bible says that it is good to praise the Lord. Do you all agree? And um, I, I tell you what, it, it doesn't matter how much the world is falling into its chaos uh, and confusion and wickedness and evil. You know, the world has its own music. It has its own spirit of trying to find some kind of joy or some kind of happiness or some kind of excitement, you know. Uh, but it's loud and it's noisy and it's, it's, it's off the wall. But we as believers in Jesus Christ, we, we have something that the world doesn't have. Actually, we have a lot that the world doesn't have. But we, we have, of course, we have Jesus. That's, that's the most important thing. But, but we have the opportunity that no matter where we are, no matter what we do in this life, as, as far as what God has called us to do, all of us have the privilege of praising the Lord. And we should never take that for granted, and we should never set it aside. It's because the world has to understand. We know... The, what the end is going to be, because we have the book of Revelation. <laughs> we know what's going to happen. Now, God knows what's going to happen you know, from beginning to end. I mean, he knows everything. And we're discovering it, and, and the things that we're learning in the book of Revelation, we're learning them because it's, it's pointing us in the, in the direction I, I mentioned this, this past Sunday. It's pointing us to the future, just like the book of Genesis points us to the future. The books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and following all the way to, Genesis, uh, to Revelation points us to what is to come. So, really, as, as much as, as we need to, to understand the Word of God for what we do in this life, it is yet still the greatest prophetic book ever been given. Because it's been given by God Himself. And because of what we know, we can praise Him. Because of who we know, we can praise Him. So I'm just want to encourage you that there's never really a time that the Lord would have us to be silent. Except in our time of devotion and prayer. 
We, he knows our hearts and we pray. But even in, our, even in our devotion, what do we do? We praise the Lord. So please keep that in mind. little mini devotion before we begin. Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 through 8 is going to be our text. Let's begin this evening by reading verses 1 through 3. Revelation 7, verses 1 through 3. Now remember that up to this point, the sixth, the sixth seal has already been broken of seven seals, and we have yet to get to the seventh, and we won't get to the seventh until chapter 8. So there's a little interruption here, if you will, or what we call a parenthesis. Uh, and so... Some things are going to happen between the sixth seal and the seventh. It says, After these things I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. And then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till... Now that's a very important word, which means until. Until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Let me ask you all a question. How many of you remember these words that I'm going to share with you in just a moment. How many of you remember these words while cramming for an English final? And by the way, can you identify this gentleman? Well, maybe you'll, uh, you'll know who it is when I give you these words. Ready? It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief, it was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light, it was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope, it was the winter of despair. We had everything before us, we had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven, we were all going direct the other way. In short, the period was so far like the present period that some of its noisiest authorities insisted on its being received for good or for evil in the superlative degree of comparison only. How many of you know who wrote that? It's this man, Charles Dickens. And so for those who remember and don't remember, they, those words are the words of Charles Dickens' opening lines to A Tale of Two Cities. How appropriate that even down through the ages, things don't change all that much. These words that we just heard, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. They can describe 18th century Paris and London, as Dickens had written. 
Or it could describe 21st century America at this time. But as we consider the future of this world in light of our studies in the book of Revelation, we have to agree that the worst of the worst of the worst of times is soon coming upon the earth. I mean, there's some bad times already, aren't there? And just like he described, there are some good times and some bad times. I mean, the whole world, since, uh, since the fall of man, has experienced those very same thoughts. The best of times, the worst of times, wisdom and ignorance. Belief and incredulity, which is unbelief. But what we know of the worst of the worst of the worst of times, it's yet to come. It's coming. And we're beginning to see that coming uh, when we look around in the world today. Things can be described as pretty bad today, in other words, but as believers in Jesus Christ, we are experiencing today the best of times. Now, I'm not saying that because I want you to, like, forget that there isn't any, or there isn't, uh, any bad times happening. No, we know there is. But I want you to understand that as believers in Jesus Christ, we are experiencing today the best of times simply because we believe in God's promises and we trust in God's Word. And no matter even if we ourselves experience some troubles or trials, as Jesus Himself said we would, when He said, in this world you will have tribulation, He said also, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. So for the believer in Jesus Christ, no matter how bad it's going to get, the best of times is ours. And the best of times is yet to come. But so is the worst of the worst of the worst of times for this world. The problem for many people today is that they don't realize that without Jesus Christ in their lives, it doesn't matter how good their lives may be. They are headed for the worst of times and an eternity of pain, an eternity of suffering, an eternity of what can only be described as a living death. Have you read, and just all you need to do is really read the words of Jesus when he describes an eternity without, without Him. What He describes about the darkness, about the smoke, about the fire, about the weeping and the wailing and the gnashing of teeth over and over and over again, that is going to be certain people's eternal destiny. If we think the worst of times is on this earth, it only leads to the worst of times for eternity. But the good news is that God is always doing something even in the worst of times. 
God is always doing something, something even in the worst of times. God is always working, in, the, in other words. Even in the worst of times, God is doing something. God has a plan. He always has had a plan. And, and He doesn't... You know what? God never even has to go to a plan B. How many of you, when, when you know, devising a plan in your life about one thing or another, you have plan A, plan B, plan C? Because if plan A doesn't work, well, we've got to go to plan B. God only has one plan. It's perfect. From beginning to end, it's perfect. It began with His goodness. It began with His goodness to create what He created. And all was good. And it turned out not to be good because of man's disobedience. And yet on that very same day that, that man fell, God provided what? He provided a lamb. And from that lamb, blood, from that blood, remission, from that lamb, a covering. God knew, as He knows now, what our greatest needs are. God is always working for the good in the midst of chaos, in the midst of evil, in the midst of evil and in the midst of wickedness. And as long as God is working in the midst of chaos and confusion, there is still hope. And there is hope in what we've been studying in in chapters uh, 5 and 6, well actually in in chapter 6 and now going into chapter 7 and 8, and following all the way to chapter 19, there is always hope. The gospel of Jesus Christ will not be stifled. The gospel of Jesus Christ will not be stilled and it will not be silenced. It's not being stifled, stilled, or silenced in any of the countries that, are, uh, that make it a law uh, or against the law to be a Christian. The gospel is still going forth. The good news of Jesus Christ will not be stifled. It will not be stilled. It will not be silenced. And while this chapter serves as a parenthesis, as I mentioned earlier, between the sixth open seal and the seventh, it also serves as the answer to the question that is posed at the end of chapter 6. So go back a page in your Bibles and look at verses 15 through 17 of Revelation 6. We saw it there last time. The kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man. If you'll notice, just everybody that's on the earth, which means that uh, because this is about judgment and this is about God's wrath and God's anger against sin and those who have rejected Christ, the church is not here. It says the commanders of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave, every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains, telling us, giving us very clear indication of the greatness of this particular anger and fury. And it says in verse 16, they said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. And notice the question in verse 17, for, for the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand? Who will be able to stand? 
By the way, on the earth at that time, it wasn't just only the unbeliever and the rejecter of, of Christ, but a whole nation of people that God was still wanting to deal with. And while on the earth, as far as those that are receiving the extent of the wrath of God, in answer to that question, there are none who, are, who will be able to stand. The fact is, two distinct groups will survive the divine wrath. Two distinct groups will survive the divine wrath. 144 Jewish evangelists will survive. And the other group is an unnumbered multitude of the converts of these evangelists who will eventually be brought to heaven. That's what chapter 7 verses 9 through 17 is about. But the first eight verses is just giving us this indication of something totally different happening in what we've been studying so far. There's a pause now, the pause between the sixth and the seventh seal. There are times when we're going through struggles and trials in our lives that it seems like they're never going to end or or the experiences themselves or the weight that's on the experiences themselves. They just seem so heavy on us that when given the opportunity, we really take it just to kind of say, man, I just need a pause from what I've experienced. Think about John for just a moment. Think about John having to receive all of this vision, all of this prophetic insight as to what is going to be happening, just as God has already seen it, because he sees things from beginning to end. And John is, is now brought in for the very purpose of recording this for us, for all of the church, and in essence, really for everyone, as a, as a warning to everyone to say, hey, listen, this is what is going to happen in the last days. What are you going to do about it? If we would be honest, if man would be honest with God, and uh, even if they don't believe in God, but if they would just be honest about a few things in life, they would realize that God is serious about what is going to take place in the end. We in the church need to be serious about what is going to take place in the end, because what we see in the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation is that God does not miss what he says. And in other words, he's not missing the point. He's not missing the target. He, he says this is going to happen and it does happen. Every prophecy that was to take place while the prophets were around, while the apostles were around, when Jesus was in his earthly ministry, every prophecy that was given about all of those things came to pass. Then the prophecies that were to point to the future 
They had their near fulfillment, but their far fulfillment, if the near fulfillment was fulfilled, the far fulfillment would be fulfilled. That's happening already. And, why, and, and it's happening to remind us that God is faithful in keeping His Word. He's reminding us of the reliability of the Scriptures. He's reminding us of the power of the Holy Spirit to give us this understanding and wisdom so that we can tell others that Jesus is coming again. It's all preparation for what is yet to come. That's why I'm glad you're here. That's why I'm not going to give up on the others in, 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 in you know, the Saturday and Sunday congregations to say, you need to get here. You need to learn about these things. I understand if you're working tonight, but I tell you what, if you're not, you need to be here. That's why I'm very happy for this group that we have. Because it says that you care about what's going to happen. It doesn't mean that not everybody doesn't care. Just, you know, I mean, we, 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 the light bulb went out, you know. We've got to realize the day of the Lord, what we talked about on Sunday. It's serious. So the pause between the sixth and the seventh seal is a well-needed one for John. After seeing all that will take place, after seeing all the devastation, after seeing all the destruction, and again, the thought comes to mind, in the midst of this wrath and judgment, the Lord is showing John and us His mercy. This, this passage is about God's mercy. This interruption here, or this parenthesis here, is about mercy. It's about God's mercy. I want you to consider a, a statement made in, the, in, in Habakkuk chapter 3 verse 2. This is one of the minor prophets. It is in your Bible, by the way, Habakkuk. Some people pronounce it Habakkuk. It's okay. It's Habakkuk. Or Habakkuk. But it says in verse 2, of chapter 3, O Lord, I have heard your speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. In wrath, remember mercy. And I can tell you that chapter 7 of the book of Revelation is God's answer to Habakkuk's prayer because this parenthetical passage is for the purpose of showing God's mercy. In the midst of the opening of the seals that have brought war and famine and pestilence and death to the world. A false peace, deception, a false Christ. It has brought a, 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 a tremendous increase. And I say it in the past tense, but it's still future. But it, it's bringing a, a tremendous increase in the death of believers in Jesus Christ, the tribulation saints. So in the midst of, the, of wrath, God remembers mercy and He suspends judgment just for a moment. He suspends judgment just for a moment. 
It is quite interesting to note that there is a parenthesis between the sixth and the seventh trumpets as well. And there is another between the sixth and the seventh bowl judgments, or the vile judgments as some of our translations say. A vial or a bowl is really a, a, a container. So, the winds of judgment have been blowing strongly. The winds of judgment up to this point, what well, we've been seeing, have been blowing very strong, but, but now there's a lull in the storm. You know, I've been kind of praying for all the stuff that's been going on in the Midwest and Oklahoma. And, you know, they had a, they had a little lull after the devastation of the, of the tornadoes and all. But then you, you get and watch, start watching the news again and, and there's another buildup. I saw it this morning. I haven't seen anything up to this point, but, uh, you know, there was another buildup. And I thought, man, they had a little lull, like about a week in this, of the storm. But now, you know, it builds up again. Can you imagine this in the time of the, of the judgments of God on the earth? They're going to be multiplied exponentially. All, all the winds of judgment. The, whole, the, the Lord halts the storm to show His mercy to those who will accept it. Yes, during the time of the tribulation, the Lord is going to halt the storm to show His mercy to those who will accept it. Thus, He is preparing them for the worst of times. He is preparing them for the worst of times. And to better understand it, uh, this, this concept, I want you to think of it this way. When the Lord saved us, when the Lord saved us, He didn't make the world system any better. Did He? The world just was bad already. We got saved. And since then, the world has gotten worse. So because we were saved, didn't make the world better. And the point is, that when the Lord saved us, He didn't make the world system better. But what He did do was equip us to live in a world that is becoming increasingly progressively worse. I, I love the words of, of Lehman Strauss. He's a <clears throat> the 20th century uh, Bible teacher and, and all. written some, some good books on prophecy in the book of Revelation as well. But he said this, he said, the world at its worst will always see God at his best. I love that. The world at its worst will always see God at his best. In wrath, the Lord remembered mercy before the flood in Noah's day, didn't he? In wrath, he remembered mercy. He was going to destroy the whole world, but he took Noah, his wife, his three sons and their wives, eight people all together, and he continued the human race through those eight people, sinners though they were, yet they believed God, and Noah was shown grace by God. In wrath, he remembered mercy. In wrath, the Lord remembered mercy on the night of the Passover in Egypt. Everyone could have been destroyed. But the Lord gave warning to everyone. 
I'm going to pass through. But if I see the blood of the Lamb on the doorposts, you'll be safe within those walls. In wrath, he remembered mercy. In wrath, he remembered mercy at Calvary when he cast the the world into darkness and he shook the earth because of man's sin. In that hour of Jesus' death, God could have closed the books on man in judgment. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. In wrath, God remembered mercy. And the light of His salvation broke through the clouds of His wrath. And the instruments the Lord used to suspend His wrath and to suspend His judgment for the moment that He did are His angels, His instruments. Look at verse 1 now. Let's, let's start to break down this verse, or these verses. After these things, John said, I saw four angels. So after the initial judgments that came from the opening of the six seals, the first six seals, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. You know, it may, it may be a common thing for critics and skeptics of the Word of God to sneer at the idea that the Lord would use angelic beings to intervene in the affairs of earth. For most people, or for many people, I should say, uh, angels are really just the subject of a lot of, of uh, paintings from the masters of the 14th, 15th, and 16th century. And, and usually the angels that were, were drawn were little fat little babies flying around with wings. Some shooting little arrows. But all of them chubby. So they must have been fed good. So any idea or any concept that there's an angel that God is going to use... Well, you see, then there's a problem with the reliability of Scripture. Has anybody seen an angel at any time? (laughs) Scripture tells us that how we are to treat those that we don't know, because they could themselves be an angel that God has sent unaware, a messenger that God sends. I think most of us at some point in time may have had the privilege of seeing someone come for a moment and then never seeing them again and wondering, could that have been a messenger of the Lord to remind us of something? But again, there are critics, there are skeptics that would question this. However, the whole of Scripture supports it. Angels are indeed God's ministers, as we are told in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 7. And it says, and of the angels, he says, who makes his angels... Spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. Again, the word angel really is the word for messenger. 
God has angels and, and there are angelic beings that were created that are mentioned in the Old Testament about those that, that are around the throne of God, cherubim and seraphim. And again, you know, the picture of cherub, we call those little angels, the little chubby angels flying around, and we call them cherubs, you know. They have a cherub, cherubic face, you know, and a nice little fat round face, you know. Uh, but but that's not what it means. I mean, we're talking about when we when we when we look at the language that this is all written in, it, it's describing something that is of of a great power, of great might. God created them for great things, and it says He makes His angel spirits and His ministers a flame of fire. So I wouldn't mess with them. God knows exactly why He has created them. We may not know, but it's okay. We don't have to know. We just need to know what it is that God has made us for. And then we need to do what God has called us to do. Verse 14 of Hebrews 1, speaking of the angels, He says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? In many ways that we would not ever know. We have been assisted by His messengers. Ah, we can take it a little bit too far sometimes. And, you know, we might talk about guardian angels and, and, and all of that. And certainly, certain nations have guardian angels. For example, Israel does. Israel has an angel that watches over them. He's an, his, this angelic being actually goes uh, in battle against... Uh, Angels representing other nations. Read the book of Daniel, you'll see that. But obviously angels appear in times of crises. And this is something that we can see throughout the the, the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. Angels appear in times of crisis often associated with judgment. As when angels brought judgment to Sodom and Gomorrah and delivered Lot from the condemned city. And again, in wrath, think about this, in wrath... God remembered mercy. And He rescued Lot and his family, except for his wife who decided she needed to look back when God said, don't look back. In our text, we're introduced to four angels who stand upon the four corners of the earth. They're commanded to hold back the four winds of the earth, or in effect, to to halt the process of judgment until God has accomplished some definite purpose. So they're working in conjunction with God's will and they're doing what the Lord has commanded them to do. And what we learn of these angels is that they have great power. They have power not only to allow the winds to move in judgment, but they also have the power to halt the winds. And I guess you've noticed now that I've mentioned the winds of judgment. And winds are associated with judgments and we'll see that in just a moment. But they are commanded to hold back the four winds of the earth or in effect to halt the process of judgment until God has accomplished some definite purpose here in chapter 7. So the four corners of the earth may in fact refer to the four points of the compass. Uh, north, south, east, west. Or, or it can refer to four quadrants of the earth because of the compass. And, and in fact you can actually separate the earth into those four particular quadrants. Or both really. Uh, in combination. But the whole idea is that these angels are going to affect the entire earth. That's the whole point. 
The angels are going to affect the entire earth. It's not about just affecting just certain parts of the earth. They're not just to affect something that's going on in the Middle East. Remember in our studies of the, in the book of Genesis about, about, the, uh, about the flood. How, how the critics of the flood all say, well, it was a local flood. No, it wasn't a local flood. It was a flood that affected the whole of the earth. When God needs to affect certain local things, other places are not affected. But the whole earth was affected. And by the way, the reason is because back in the garden when, when Adam sinned and Eve sinned, they affected the whole of the earth. All of the earth changed. Everything changed about it. Everything changed about man. So that when you get to Genesis chapter 6 verse 5, it tells us that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. So we have to understand that. They're affecting, these four angels are powerful enough to affect the whole earth in accordance to God's command. But nevertheless, there have been those critics of the scriptures that say the earth was considered flat and square even in John's time. Oh, listen, science didn't come about till many, many years later. But up until, you know, the time of, uh, uh, you know, the, whatever scientists it was, you know, that gives us all the theories about oh, Galileo, whatever, you know, about the earth being round and not flat. <laughs> the critics are saying, it says corners, therefore it can't be round. Now, these are the same critics. These are the same people who have no problem with the weather report in the morning when the, when the weatherman, the meteorologist says, sun up will be at 5.35. Sun up? That's not science. The sun doesn't rise. We're the ones that are moving around the sun. Ah! Figure of speech! Right? Oh, they were so behind in the times back then. He had to only describe that it was four corners, therefore it was flat and it wasn't round. Figure of speech! See or no? However, long before man recognized that the earth was round, God spoke to them about this fact. Look at Isaiah 40, verse 22. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. Believers already knew the world was round because God said it was. Isn't that great? Our God created science. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out. Now, are anybody here, do you rub your wing like a grasshopper? No, right? So it's a kind of an analogy here. Who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. It's that first phrase. He who sits above the circle of the earth. And then that's the reality. Proverbs 8.27 
When speaking of the wisdom of God. It says, when he prepared the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep. Drew a circle. It's not square. It's flat. Ah, gotcha. It's not square, it's round. It's round. And I'll tell you that these verses that I've just given you refer to the shape of the earth, not only... It is not only that it is circular, circular, excuse me, but it is spherical. It is a sphere. Those of you that like basketball, you don't play with a ball that looks like a basketball, but is actually as flat as a pizza. And, no, and so you don't flip it in like that. It's round, right? It's spherical. And these words are dealing with the sphere uh, quality of the earth, not any other thing. So what we have here in chapter 7 is a figure of speech. We still, as a matter of fact, we still talk about the four corners of the earth, don't we? A few years ago, the United States Marine Corps ran an ad and it stated this. Our Marines are stationed on the four corners of the earth. They knew that the world was not flat or square, but they were stating the fact that their personnel were on duty in the northern, southern, eastern, and western parts of the earth. It was a figure of speech. Now, if the four winds of the earth are to be withheld from the earth, that would mean that these winds are to be considered a destructive force behind God's judgment as they are often used in Scripture. For example, Hosea chapter 13, verse 15 says, Though he is fruitful among his brethren, an east wind shall come. The wind of the Lord... This is speaking about Ephraim, the the, the line of Ephraim, or the, the, uh, the tribe of Ephraim. Though he is fruitful among his brethren, an east wind shall come. The wind of the Lord shall come up from the wilderness. Then his spring shall become dry, and his fountain shall be dried up. He shall plunder the treasure of every desirable prize. It's talking about judgment, isn't it? It's a wind of judgment. Jeremiah chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. It says, At that time it will be said to this people and to Jerusalem, A dry wind of the desolate heights blows in the wilderness toward the daughter of my people, not to fan or to cleanse. A wind too strong for these will come for me. Now I will also speak judgment against them. Whoops, didn't get you that last part. A wind too strong for me, uh, for these will come for me. Now I will also speak judgment against them. So, and there's many others, and I, we don't want to go into that great detail. Uh, you've heard what, what it says, um, uh, even the Apostle Paul kind of refers to it himself uh, when he talks about, um, you know, uh, of course, this comes from the Old Testament. It's, you know, so if you sow to the wind, you're going to reap the whirlwind. If you sow to the wind, you're going to reap the whirlwind. So, I mean, that's the same idea here that winds are a way of bringing judgment. Uh, and why are the winds restrained? Why are the winds restrained by the, by, the, uh, by the angels and by the strength given to these angels? Why are they restrained? Well, I'll tell you why. Let's look at verses 2 and 3 now of our text, because this gives us the understanding. Then I, then I saw another angel ascending from the east. So now there's a fifth angel involved in this particular vision. I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God... And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels, 
to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Now a mightier angel comes. I say mightier only in the fact that he's given some authority to tell these other angels what to do and what not to do. So this mightier angel appears on the eastern horizon to instruct the four angels who had the power to hurt both the earth and the sea to restrain the winds of judgment long enough, long enough for this angel to seal the servants of God. He bore a message, in other words, he bore a message of grace. He brought a message of grace. Again, in wrath, God remembered mercy. And so he tells the angels to restrain the winds of judgment, to seal the servants of God. The seal however you want to see it was an imprint uh, there were seals of uh, certain family names crests down through the ages and, and a ring maybe was made to make an impression upon a softer uh, material like wax as a matter of fact the, the, the seals that uh, are usually described uh, that are being opened by Jesus or considered to be wax seals, but they have a, 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 a stamp on it because the stamp means that whoever has that stamp is the owner of whatever he stamps. So, if we have been sealed, as we'll see in a moment, by the Holy Spirit of God, then who do we belong to? We belong to Jesus, don't we? We belong to the Lord. We, we no longer belong to ourselves or to anyone. We belong to Jesus. So the idea then is that these servants of God are going to be sealed. And, and, uh, and so there's, a, there's a, a, a picture of grace here because we're sealed which means we are safe and secure in Christ for our eternity. Jesus talked about this a few times, in the, especially in the Gospel of John. I mean, he talks about it in all his Gospels. But those who he loves, he will guard and keep. And they, he said, will be safe. And so, the extent of God's salvation through Christ is that there is an assurance of our faith, an assurance, I should say, of our salvation because of our faith in Jesus Christ. So, with that in mind, just consider this, this seal. Because in Scripture, a seal, again, indicates ownership and protection. Not just ownership, but ownership and protection. The martyrs of the church from the very beginning, starting with Stephen in, in, in the book of Acts chapter 7. The martyrs of the church were sealed, owned by God. But somebody might say, but they, he wasn't protected. Yes, he was. He stood for the truth of Jesus Christ in the midst of this. 
of this hatred against Christ. And he gave his life, his physical life, but the, the life that God gives us is protected with Christ where Christ is. So, to be apart from the body, as Paul states, is to be present with the Lord. Protected. We may not have to give our lives for the Lord, but we may have to someday. But that's okay. We belong to Him. That's why the martyrs down through the ages, that's why the persecution that's taking place in the church is not anything that we need to worry about. See, we, we have to have a, a completely different perspective about life and death as a Christian. Remember what, what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, that we, we're not to be like those who have no hope in this life. Death affects people really strongly because they think, I don't, you know, oh, somebody, the closest person to me has died and oh my goodness, I can't live life anymore. No, no, you can. You're, you're, you're living and breathing. But the perspective for us as believers is that now that we're believers in Jesus Christ, we are safe and secure in heaven. Our treasures are in heaven. They're not here on this earth. We're safe with Him. As believers now, we say, I, I want to live as long as I can possibly live to serve the Lord. When He's ready to bring me home, then that's when I go home. But until then, I am going to stay. You know, we, we, God's all about life. But the bad perspective is saying, I'm afraid to die. Why would we be afraid if we know what's waiting for us when we do die? The only thing I want to do is just go when God wants me to go. I don't want to make that determination. I'll fight for life because I serve Him. But when it's my time, it's time to go home. Because I know that this isn't home, folks. See, see the perspective. So, in Scripture, the seal is an ownership and protection. And today, God's people are sealed, as I said, by the Holy Spirit. Look at verses 13 and 14 of, of Ephesians. Chapter, come on. Give me some help here. There we go. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. In Him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed, notice, with the Holy Spirit of promise. Amen. Who, being the Holy Spirit, is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of of His glory. This is the Lord's guarantee that we are saved and safe and that one day He will take us to heaven. That's our guarantee. Okay. So for these servants of God that, we're, that we see in our text, they will be receiving a protective seal on their foreheads which will contain God's name in some form and manner. Look, look at verse 4. Now go back to Revelation 7. Look at verse 4. And I heard the number of those who were sealed. 
144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Twelve tribes, 12,000 in each tribe. Do the math, it's easy, 144,000. 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. The children of Israel. Children of Israel. Children of Israel. Tribes of the children of Israel. You know why I'm doing this, right? Jump down to chapter 14 real quick. Then I looked and behold a lamb standing on the mount, on Mount Zion and, and with it. Mount Zion! Where is it? Israel! <laughs> and who's there? The children of Israel. I looked and behold a lamb standing on Mount Zion and, and with him a hundred and forty-four thousand having his father's name written on their foreheads. If language means anything at all, if language means anything at all, these sealed ones are literally Israelites. As we shall see more specifically in verses 5 through 8, this group cannot be the church. Even though when the church was around, the church was made up of both Gentile and Jews. Right? Who, by the way, who were the first Christians? They were Jews. And then came the Gentiles. Then we learned something different though. Later on, the Apostle Paul said, okay, we're, we're made up of Jews and Gentiles, but as the church, we're no longer Jews and Gentiles. We're the church. And we're going to talk a little bit about that as we go on into the book of Revelation. But, but this group cannot be the church because the church, by the way, is in heaven with the Lord already. Besides, the church is neither Jewish nor Gentile. The church is a new entity, one new man made up of believing Jews and, and believing Gentiles. Go to Ephesians, back to Ephesians chapter 2 verses 11 through 14. Therefore, Paul says, remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh... Because those who were living in, in, in Ephesus at the time were mostly Gentiles. So he says, therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands. In other words, the, the Jews who were the circumcised called you the uncircumcised. That's all he's saying. And then in verse 12 he says that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. <laughs> And strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's the church made up of Jew and Gentile. For he himself, Jesus, is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. We've been made one. By the way, the Jew did not become a Gentile. No. If you're a Jew, it's okay. 
But you were made a part of the body of Jesus. Did the Gentile become a Jew? Not really. Although we share the blessing of the Jewish people. Because their Messiah is our Lord. So he has broken down the middle wall of separation. Now getting to that issue that I mentioned just earlier, Galatians 3, 27 and 28. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, whether you were Jew or Gentile, right? Okay, so he says there is neither Jew nor Greek, which is Gentile. There is neither Jew nor Greek, in other words. This is the way we need to see it as the church. There, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. Praise the Lord. Because women were always treated less than they should have been. Both in the Jewish culture and in the Gentile culture. In the church, things changed. The love of Christ became the focal point. In this sealed company, Israel... Israel, Israel is plainly, clearly, and literally before us. 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes, not present-day adherents of sects or cults. That's why I emphasized Israel so much. F.L. Brook said this. I, don't, I didn't put it up here. I wish I had there is no, he said this, there is no logical, theological, or etymological reason for calling Israel anything but the sons of Jacob. There is no reason to call them anything but the sons of Jacob. And I have to say, with all due respect, that if a Seventh-day Adventist or an adherent to the non-Christian cult known as the Jehovah's Witnesses should claim to be a member of the 144,000, please let them prove to which tribe he or she belongs. They have to prove it. And I can tell you this, most of them are not Jewish. They don't even know what tribe they come from when they're Gentiles. Much less what tribe are they going to be when they're Jews. Oh, and I have to say, the Jews even today still aren't sure about which tribe they are from. That means that God is going to have to reveal this to them. But praise the Lord, God can do it. The 144,000 are all Israelites, not one Gentile among them. And there are theological reasons why some groups believe that they have the 144,000. Even Herbert W. Armstrong and the Worldwide Church of God many, many years ago, you know, they claimed that they had the 144,000 in their group. No. Why? Which one of them were Jews? You'll have to be an Israelite. That's very clear. Look at what it says, Revelation 7, verses 5 through 8. Of the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. Do I have any Judahites here tonight? You have to know if you're going to call yourself 144,000. Of the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were sealed. Reuben, is that your tribe? See, we got a Reuben here. 
of the tribe of Gad, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Asher, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Manasseh, oh, that's chapter 6, that's verse 6, isn't it? Okay. Uh, of the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 were sealed. Verse 7, of the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 were sealed. Are, are these not specific names being given? Well, then you've got to prove that you're in one of those groups. From what I understand with the Jehovah's Witnesses, many of the 140,000 that were first sealed when they first began as a, as a cult, uh, you know, doing what they were doing, and then assigning 144,000 people to their group, most of them are dead now. I mean, well, does somebody take your place if you die? You know, I'm, I'm just, I'm asking. It's yet, yet to be, folks. Because the Jews are going to be dealt with by God in the right and proper way for them to come back to Him. And He is going to use His own people as they were supposed to be being used from the very beginning to give witness and testimony to the power of the living God. Israel! And the people of Israel. Where am I? Simeon, 12,000, of the tribe of Levi, or Levi, not the, the genes guy. Levi, Levi, the priestly tribe. Isn't this interesting? We don't see Levi mentioned back in the Old Testament. There were a couple of other tribes that... We're going to talk about this, by the way, because of time, we're going to talk about this next, week, next time. But, but listen, of the tribe of Levi, 12,000, of the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 were sealed, verse 8, come on. Of the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 were sealed. And of the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. Those who spiritualize the scriptures, making Israel the church one and confusing law and grace, rob the nation of Israel of her promised blessings, and in so doing, they are committing a serious evil. In our next study, we will look at some distinctive and apparent differences between this listing of tribes with the others mentioned in Scripture before moving on. But suffice it to say that in every age, the Lord has had His faithful remnant. Elijah thought he was alone, but God had 7,000 who were faithful to Him. These 144,000 represent God's faithful elect in every age of history. In any event... They are the beginning harvest of the salvation of Israel. They are the beginning harvest of the salvation of Israel. I want you to turn to Romans 11. We're going to stop here, but I want you to see this. Romans 11, verses 26 and 27. What does Paul say? By the way, before you read that, and I didn't put it on, but I, I just sense that we need to look at verse 1 first. So, so look up at, at Romans 11 verse 1. Because it says there, I say then, has God cast away His people? There's a good question to ask. Especially to ask those groups that say, no, we've got the 144,000. No, listen to the question that Paul asked nearly 2,000 years ago. He, he asked, I say then, has God cast away His people? God forbid. Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham and of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul knew what tribe he was from. 
The 144,000 will, by God's wisdom and grace, whatever way God chooses, they're going to know what tribe they're from. They're going to discover it. They're doing everything they can in Israel today to, uh, to prepare for the, for the temple once again, which means that they have to have priests that are uh, from a certain line, of course, the line of, of, of Levi, as it were. But they have to have that, that connection with the blood. Nowadays, with DNA, there's going to be a way to discover all of this. So get, jump down to verse 26 now. And so all Israel will be saved. Look at that. All Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. Who's Jacob? Israel. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. I didn't think we were going to make it in time. We didn't. I went a a, a minute over. But folks, this is serious. We do the people of God an injustice when we start claiming or when man starts claiming without the leading of the Holy Spirit I have to say that without the leading of the Holy Spirit they are making claims to things that do not belong to them let's remember that we must heed the word of God and believe it In this, we must believe it literally. There is no reason to spiritualize any of this. There is an Israel. There are Israelites. There are people who are going to know what their calling is, what their name is, and they are going to be sealed. 12,000 from every one of these tribes. And we're going to show some distinctions. As, as, As you'll notice, the tribe of Dan is not mentioned up here. I'll say this very quickly. This is to bring you back next time. The tribe of Dan isn't mentioned here because Dan, what, the, the tribe of Dan was instrumental in leading Israel into idolatry. That's one reason. But, but that, that, that's what we're saying here. We, we have to realize the, present, the preciousness of Levi being mentioned. And again, we'll talk about this next time. But, but that's the importance of, of this particular section of the Scriptures. We cannot spiritualize about Israel. We cannot spiritualize about the end times. Where are the greatest concentrations of struggle today in the world? It is all in the epicenter with Israel in the crosshairs and Jerusalem at the very target of those crosshairs. Yes, all the other nations and all the other problems are important because God is going to judge nations. But He's going to judge individuals too. So the best thing to do is to get right with Jesus. To let Him purify and cleanse you. Let Him be your Lord and your Savior. And that you will be sealed. That you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. 
safe and secure in Christ no matter what happens to us. That's the seriousness of the gospel and of prophecy and of end time things. Let's pray.